Welcome to Making Therapy Better, the podcast that brings together some of the top minds in psychotherapy as well as everyday clinicians to talk about where the field is headed and how we can achieve better mental health care for everyone. Making Therapy Better is hosted by Professor Bruce Wampold, who has dedicated his career to understanding how therapy works and advocating evidence-based methods for improving outcomes. His guest today is Jonathan Shedler, Ph.D., Dr. Shedler is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and faculty member at the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis. He is the author of numerous scientific and scholarly articles, and his article, The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, won worldwide acclaim for firmly establishing psychoanalytic therapy as an evidence-based treatment. He has more than 25 years' experience teaching and supervising psychologists, psychiatrists, and psychoanalysts. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths has been helping in-person and virtual therapy practices thrive for over 20 years with their complete web-based EHR and practice management platform. As mental health care evolves, CarePaths is leading the way in making measurement-based care easy and cost-effective for therapists. Visit carepaths.com to sign up for a free trial today. And now, without further ado, episode 10 of Making Therapy Better, The Problem with Clinical Trials, with Jonathan Shedler, Ph.D. So, Jonathan, it's a delight to be able to talk to you for an hour today. Um, of course, I've read your work, and in preparation uh, for the interview, I reread um, some of the things you've done and listened to that, some that's of That's funny. In, in preparation, I reread some of the things you've done. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I was impressed by the the not just the thoroughness, but the, the clinical insight and the effort to really make therapy better to help difficult patients. And primary, or, uh, primarily, you know, those with personality disorders. And of course, these are, are tough patients to treat, um, many life challenges. So, Here's where I want to start. So, um, you know, we have clinical trials and evidence from naturalistic settings that uh, purports to show that there really aren't differences among therapies. Yet you make a very strong case for uh, psychoanalytic, modern psychoanalytic, I should say, or psychodynamic therapy. So how do you reconcile uh, what some would say, including me, that there really aren't differences among treatments with well, that's, your... That's a um, really good question. Um, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. Was no, let's, let, let's get started. Let's dive so so let me, I'm, I'm going to say something. It's going to sound very controversial, but hear me out. Um, I think, so So first of all, let's start with where we agree. I do agree with you. If you look at outcomes of, you know, outcomes of psychotherapy research, RCTs, you know, and you looked at it, you know, without a, a bias or an agenda, just, you know, what are we seeing? You really would have to conclude that 
you know, all bona fide therapies are producing equivalent outcomes. And, and there's, you know, the, um, uh, oh, <laughs> what's it called? The, uh, the, uh, bird. the Alice in Wonderland, yeah, yeah the yeah, dodo yeah. bird verdict holds, right? There, there's, there is simply no consistent evidence that any form of therapy is more effective than any other. So if you, if, if you, you know, if you're, <laughs> If you're guided by what the research says, I think you have to conclude that. However, I think the research sucks. I do not believe psychotherapy researchers, there's exceptions here and there. I do not believe they are studying psychotherapy. I think they're mm. studying some invention, some facsimile of therapy that's an invention of their own creation it has little or nothing to do with what I consider meaningful psychotherapy, right? Mm -hmm. And none of these results apply to what I would consider therapy. Now, let me, that's a pretty, you know, I, I realize that's, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty bold statement. So let me be more specific. Um, you know, I've been tracking meta-analyses. You've done some of them. Pim, I hope I'm pronouncing his, his name correctly, Pim Kuypers, I think is how mm -hmm. you pronounce it, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, keeps publishing multiple meta-analyses from this data set of, of treatments for depression. Right? So uh, I was actually in touch with him because I wanted to clarify a few things. He's got a data set that's publicly available of several hundred studies, it's, it's, it's over 200, of, of RCTs studying outcomes for treatment of depression. The average duration of those treatments is eight sessions. I'm just going to say flat out categorically, that's not psychotherapy. Psychotherapy mm. does not happen in eight sessions. Doesn't care. I don't care who the therapist is. I don't care what the therapist brand is. The rate limiting factor is how long it takes for psychological change to take place. So what they're, in my view, what they're really measuring, you know, is basically an immediate short-term, we could call it a placebo effect, or we could call it an effect of, of you know, a short-term response to common factors. Um, uh, remoralization, offering hope, expectation of benefits, some form of structured, you know, some form of structured interaction, listening, right? These are all common factors, I think you'd agree. Right? And people do benefit from these in the immediate short run. In fact, people benefit just, just from people with depression, just from shifting from the, you know, relatively passive and helpless stance of, you know, there's nothing I can do to taking an active step of going ahead and finding a therapist or a clinic and scheduling an appointment. We see positive change happen before the first appointment even occurs. Mm -hmm. right? So, so we are measuring, these studies are measuring artifacts of, you know, that go along with beginning any kind of intervention process but it's way, way too short for actual meaningful psychological change to take place. That's one issue, right? We're not studying therapy. We're studying the immediate uh, short-term effect of what we could call first aid, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing is, even if the studies were long enough, which they're not, we're not measuring psychological change as outcome measures. You know, we're measuring mm. questionnaire scores. And, you know, this isn't just my opinion. There's a few studies about this, but, you know, 
as a clinician, this is not the focus of my work. There are studies about what patients are wanting and expecting and hoping for in psychotherapy. And this is not the focus of what most patients are looking for. So what we have, you know, to me, the, the goal or the purpose of a particular therapy and the desired outcome of a particular therapy is very individual. It's something that, you know, a, a sense of the, the purpose, psychological purpose of the work is something that emerges organically from the work that the therapist and patient are doing together. It, it actually takes two minds to formulate, you know, not, I want to be less depressed. Of course, the patient wants mm. that. But what would have to change about the person themselves in order to, you know, help them to be less vulnerable to that? What's going on psychologically? Right? So the, the, the goals of, of therapy really need to emerge organically from, from the work of, you know, the, 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 the two parties in therapy. And, you know, right? so they're, 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 they're individual. And what we're doing now is we've got researchers who have never met the patient, who have no idea who they are as a person, who have no idea how they're living their lives, making an a priori decision on their behalf. It's not even the clinicians don't even make the decision. Patients and clinicians are irrelevant. The researcher decides what counts as, you know, as a good outcome in this therapy without ever consulting the patient or the clinician. So, so mm -hmm. let me just recap. You know, one is it's not real therapy because meaningful change in therapy starts to happen around the six month mark. And all of these RCTs are over before therapy even begins. And, you know, second, even if the therapies were longer, we're not even trying to measure psychological change. We're not trying to measure meaningful outcomes. So, you know, to say it bluntly, I think this is all a, a, a shell game. You know, researchers yeah. are studying yeah. their own research methods and and creating research artifacts, and they're studying their own artifacts, and the whole thing spirals further and further and further away from anything that I, as a, I hope, serious clinician, recognizes as meaningful psychotherapy. Well, so, um, I agree with you on one primary point, and that is <laughs> that this is controversial. So, um, well, 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 look, but, um, let's dive into this because I think you, you, you raise really important questions that we have to discuss. So it isn't just, okay, well, you're controversial and out of the, well, I'm, the, I'm not the, just, I'm not saying it because I want to be controversial. I'm, I'm saying it because I literally believe this is the, you know, this is the truth. Yeah. And, and. You know, and it, the truth, I believe it's the truth based on, you know, not only, you know, not only my experience being a therapist and teaching therapy for decades, but also based on, you know, what's actually in the literature, that research literature that people keep ignoring. We, we know quite a bit about how long psychotherapy takes on average, but researchers don't study therapies of realistic duration. Right, right. So... Let's talk about meaningful psychological change. All right. And so in the classic RCT, uh, the patients get screened for depression, let's say. 
So you have Pim Kuyper's hundreds of studies. So there's some kind of clinical evaluation that's done. They meet the criteria for major depressive disorder. Their scores on typically the Beck Depression Inventory yeah. or, or even or the HAMD or something the like that. The right? yeah, goes from uh, the pathological range into the uh, what would be classified as the normal range. Why is that not meaningful psychological change? Because I, you know, okay, let me just preface this. I mean, people are, are complex. There's always exceptions. So when I, you know, kind of make categorical statements, I'm, I'm referring to, you know, what's what's generally true or what's true on average, not, not what might be true for a specific individual. So um, I think symptoms like depression and anxiety are effects, not causes, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an analogy. Um, you know, the analogy is, is fever. If you get sick, you know, there's a good chance you, you may be running a fever. And, and what a, medically, what a fever is, is a nonspecific physiological response to an enormous range of underlying conditions, you know, ranging from the common cold to Ebola, right? Nonspecific means lots of different things produce this. I, you know, if you take you know, aspirin, you know, the likelihood is it will reduce your fever in the short run. Mm -hmm. You'll see a benefit, right? And, and now if I were an aspirin researcher, now it's time to go take a, a victory lap and declare aspirin to be the gold standard treatment for fever, except fever isn't a disease, right? Mm -hmm. Fever is an effect of a disease. I would say that depression and anxiety are the psychic equivalents a fever. They're nonspecific responses to an enormous range of underlying psychological difficulties. And you said, you know, I think you're, you're uh, tweaking me a little bit and rightfully so, because I use the word meaningful therapy without defining it. To me, meaningful therapy is, is therapy that's aimed at changing something psychological, right? Something about the underlying psychological processes that give rise to depression. So, you know, if, if you think that the analogy is reasonable, right, there's all kinds of short-term interventions that in the immediate short run look better than legitimate treatment. You know, suppose you had um, somebody with a bacterial respiratory infection and, you know, imagine a hypothetical, you know, hypothetical experiment. One group gets... Um, you know, uh, aspirin and cough suppressant and throat lozenges, and they take that. The other group, you know, gets an antibiotic that actually treats the infection. And we measure the results, you know, two hours or four hours later. You know, well, the symptomatic treatment is going to look better. So now we take our victory lap and we say, you know, well, this is the gold standard of care, except the symptoms come back. We haven't treated the condition. And, and, and that's actually, I think that's very analogous to what we see in psychotherapy research, you know, with precious few exceptions. There's either no follow-up, or if there's a follow-up, you know, six months is, seems kind of typical. But we're not interested 
in whether the person is feeling better, you know, right now. What we're interested in is whether something psychologically meaningful has changed that, you know, allows them to function better in their lives going forward. So let me add a third problem with psychotherapy outcome research as we're doing it today. You know, one is it's too short to be real therapy. Two is we're not measuring psychological outcomes that I would, you know, that real clinicians and their patients would focus on. And three, we're measuring the results in such a short time span that it doesn't even tell us whether real psychological change has taken place. And I would use an analogy, you know, it's like, um, you know, imagine a, you know, imagine a, a ship leaving port and, you know, and you change the heading, you know, a couple of degrees, right? If you, if you measure where the ship is, you know, half a mile after they left port, they're, ba- you know, they're, they're basically in the same place. But if you follow it out over hundreds or thousands of miles, mm. it, it might be the difference between ending up in Alaska versus ending up in Hawaii, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm not interested in... <laughs> psychotherapy outcome measured on the day therapy ends. And I'm not even that interested in psychotherapy outcome measured, you know, six months after I'm interested in, have we made a lasting change in this person's life? And you know, this, what we see with, you know, depression is a great example. You know, half of the people approximately don't improve at all, right? Of the remaining, you know, half the, the, the half that does improve, right? Most of them don't get well, they're improved, but they're not well. But those benefits dissipate quickly, people relapse. And, and when you do the, you know, when you do the arithmetic, just, you know, add, you know, 50% don't get, you know, don't get better. Um, another, you know, another 25 to 30% relapse. And you look at the big picture, it's like, well, 75% of people who have so-called evidence-based treatment for the depression, these brief manualized treatments, either don't improve at all or improve and relapse quickly. It's beyond me how anybody can take research that shows that and then declare these to be scientifically proven evidence-based treatments. What we've just proven scientifically is that these treatments are failing about 75% of depressed patients who enter the trials, right? That, that, I I mean, maybe somebody else wants to call that a gold standard. To me, it looks like we're failing the overwhelming majority of patients. So now what the researchers do is, oh, well, I mean, the smarter researchers know this and the more honest ones, you know, what can we do? How do we tweak the therapy? What can we change? How do we get better outcomes? But it never occurs to them to make a fundamental change in what, how they're defining psychotherapy. They still want to study eight session treatments. You know, as if there's some magic bullet that you can do, that you can find, that you can administer within eight sessions, right? And and you're somehow going to undo human nature. And human nature is that longstanding ingrained patterns, and I think that describes most people who make it to a mental health professional, right? take time to change. We have neuroplasticity. The brain, brain can change. We can form new neural networks. That takes time. It's a slow process. And, you know, frankly, I mean, I believe anybody who's out there beating the drum and saying, you know, you know, this treatment works and, and, you know, and it happens in eight sessions. 
it is just, first of all, I think they're selling snake oil. And second, I think they're disregarding all of the science, except, you know, their short-term outcomes and their short-term RCTs. Because the science tells us change doesn't happen like that. Well, <laughs> that, that's a lot to get your head around. So a couple of things. One is, I, I think the statistics are a little more uh, uh, supportive of change within, well, eight to 16 weeks um, that a uh, sizable number of people, and it is a short-term follow-up, six months to two years. There are some uh, in Norway. Yeah, there's, long, there's some longer. I know. Yeah, but the modal study is as you describe it. But the outcomes, actually, if you look at, uh, number needed to treat for short-term, let's say, 8 to 16 sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, interpersonal therapy or emotion-focused therapy, a uh, impressive outcome if you uh, think that the Beck depression inventory or the HAMD is the no. I, I don't think that, and I don't think it's effective unless the unless it lasts. And I'll tell you the but, source of but, these numbers. Okay, but let's talk about lasting. Are there studies? That no, show because no. I mean, there are, but two. Let me two answers. I think it's an unfair question to ask. Are there studies? when our entire research establishment is really geared around making sure that it's almost impossible to do long-term studies of realistic duration. Nobody mm -hmm. has an incentive to do that. Right? You know, so, I mean, I was, a, you know, I was an academic researcher. I'm not, you know, criticizing the other guy. I, I was part of it. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it's a publisher perish rat race, academic careers, you know, are, are, you know, are made or, or break on the basis of publications and grant funding and so on. And I mean, it would just be professional suicide for yeah. an untenured, you know, faculty member to study therapies of what I would call realistic duration, which would be one to two years, you know, when their colleagues are racking up publications based on eight or 12 or 16 session therapy and working within publication and, and grant cycles, there's no incentive whatsoever for anyone to do this research. So when you say, what evidence is there? It's like, how can, you know, there's no evidence if no one looks mm -hmm. for it. And the entire system is, you know, is set yeah. up yeah. to incentivize people not to look right. The second thing, the, the, um, I think maybe the most comprehensive recent review of you know the depression outcome literature is actually the American Psychological Association clinical guidelines for um, mm. you know, for depression, and they changed it. I have their current um, you know the final copy of their manuscript. I also have the I also have the previous version of it that was put out for public comment. Um, it's it's stated in both of the documents, but it's stated much more clearly in the, in the original document. Um, over 40 years of research, it's, this is what it says in, in there, and this is by people who are in favor and recommending these brief manualized therapies. Over 40 years of research, the, the findings have been consistent, four decades, that about 50% of people 
in the studies actually don't improve. And among those who do improve, 40% of those relapse by follow-up. So you just, you know, just do the math. Mm. I mean, that, that comes out to 70% of people either don't get any benefits at all or get only temporary benefits. That, I mean, it's not my finding. Mm. I mean, that's what the literature shows. And, you know, depending on how you want to, you know, interpret it, you know, if you want to say, hey, their fever went down, take the victory lap. Mm. You can find justification in the, in the research data for doing that. If you step back and say, no, I'm a clinician, you know, I'm, I'm in the business of, I'm in the business of seeing people change in meaningful ways so that their life is different going forward. And from mm. my vantage point, these studies aren't addressing what I do in therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's approach this in a little different way. Let's suppose that uh, uh, the relatively short 18 to 16 session treatment of depression um, has a uh, uh, benefit. It may not be as dramatic as uh, some make it out to be, and maybe it's not as longer lasting. But what resources do we have in the mental health system to be able to treat people for two or three years of long-term therapy if these relatively brief treatments are relatively effective relative well, to they're not relatively effective that's what well, I, I mean I think that's we, what we can't that's... say the effect is zero Jonathan let's say it's it's uh, I'm saying 15 percent versus 30 percent for long term wouldn't it be more beneficial to the population to give relatively brief treatments, even if the effects are? Uh, no, because what I see, and I, so I, it's funny in the uh, podcast I just recorded when I thought I was meeting with you, they asked, you know, how did I, how did I even get interested in this? So I was an attending doctor in, a, in an outpatient psychiatry department. I supervised you know, I supervised psychiatry residents who were providing treatment, medication, and, and psychotherapy both to I mean, huge numbers of patients. Thousands of people moved through this, patients moved through this, this clinic over the course of the year. So what I observed is, first of all, the, these people are suffering quite a bit. I mean, they have serious symptoms. They're, they're longstanding. Virtually all of them have had multiple prior treatments, psychotherapy and medication both. They've been told that they had evidence-based gold standard treatment, that this is, you know, this is the treatment for them. And from where I sat, thousands of people moving through day after day after day, they had no benefit from it to speak of, none. I mean, none. I saw people who were in treatment for quote unquote depression, you know, for 10 and 15 years. And it's just a revolving door of going from one treatment to another, to another, mm -hmm. to another. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so first of all, I think there's a real societal cost to telling people, we know how to treat it. This is treatable. We have proven mm -hmm. treatments that work and give them snake oil. I mean, at, at the very least, you know, do the one thing that, that every clinician worth his salt knows is essential, which is, you know, we have to say what we mean and mean what we say, and we have to do our best to, 
to say the truth. So I would feel a lot better about it all if we said to patients, medication or therapy, actually, either one, say, this treatment seems to have, you know, seems to help about 15% of people, you know, beyond the immediate short run. You may be in that 15%. It's worth a try. You know, you may not be. If not, you know, there's other treatment and longer term treatment, you know, let's, because of how our healthcare system works, let's try the briefer treatment or the medication first, you know, let's find out if it's enough. When I think about the years I spent as an attending supervisor, I don't think I ever encountered one patient once who had been told that Mm -hmm. they were told this is the treatment for you. And I mean, I don't know if you're a practicing you know, clinician. I've read your research for years and value it, really value it. But I can't tell you how demoralizing it is to a patient to tell them that, give them a treatment that in fact is known to fail most patients. It fails them. And they don't come away thinking I didn't get the right treatment or I got inadequate treatment. They come away and come away thinking that they're beyond the reach of treatment. They think it's because they are so bad and mm. so disturbed and so impaired. Right? And it, it is, has absolutely devastating life consequences. So if you want to switch our conversation from a clinical realm what helps patients? How do we help patients? What do we know about how it works? If you want to switch it from a clinical realm to a public policy realm, we're now talking about something completely different. You know, now we're talking about allocation of societal resources, not my expertise. We're mm-hmm. not talking about what we know clinically about how to help people. And if we do move to the public policy realm, I think the fundamental premise of anything we discuss is we really need to start with the truth. Mm-hmm. Well, it'd be interesting <laughs> that to actually have a debate. Let's say, Jonathan, you know, let's bring Steve Holland, who's going to make the case. Well, that, he's one he, of the people who wrote it. He's yeah, one of the people who said that. Who wrote the the guidelines? Um, about I don't the know if he wrote. No, I was actually I was thinking about there's um, in preparation for our interview. I. Pulled it up on my screen. Um, there's a brand new paper out. And where did it go? Here it is. Um, 2022. It's Ormel, Holland, Ron Kessler, Pim Kuypers, Scott Monroe are the authors. It's, it's called More Treatment But No Less Depression, The Treatment Prevalence Paradox. And, you know, what they wrote about it. Yeah, people are getting more and more and more treatment. But <laughs> people aren't getting better. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the paper of which he's a co-author lays out, you know, what percentage of people are really getting well and staying well. So I, mm-hmm. I think, I, I don't know, um, I don't know Steve Holland personally, but, you know, so just from reading his work, I think he's a serious scientist. I think, you know, I think he's doing things rigorously, but I think there's a way he wants to have his cake and eat it too, by which I mean he knows damn well that these treatments are failing most people most of the time. He's written it on multiple occasions. Yeah. And he, well, keeps, and he keeps coming back to the way to do treatment is manualized short-term therapy. That's what I mean by cake and eat it too. Yeah. Maybe we have to rethink the whole program. Maybe, maybe, just, just consider this. 
maybe you just can't do the job in eight weeks or 16 weeks for most people. And maybe when you do manualized therapy, you're not just checking that the therapist knows what they're doing. Maybe you are fundamentally changing what therapy is right, in a way that makes it not therapy. Yeah. Just, just maybe. Well, we have a disagreement about the statement, <laughs> most people fail. But let's not focus on that, Jonathan. So there's uh, something related to this I want to talk about. And then I want to change the subject a little bit because you have expertise in other areas I think we really need to talk about. I'm but, having so much fun talking to you about this. Yeah. So <laughs> but go ahead. Talk to me about what you mean, because I think this is really important, about fundamental meaningful change. What's different about the change for somebody who has really participated in what you call psychotherapy uh, uh, once or more times a week for uh, a year or so? What's different about that change than the change, let's say the successful changes yeah. that might be made in CBT. So let's forget about the argument about whether uh, the brief manualized treatments. Well, but but even not. CBT in the real world doesn't happen in eight to 16 sessions. We have data no, on that. Too. I know, I know right? This whole it, thing about we can do it in, you know, but, but, eight or 12 or 16 sessions is a, is a myth. You but know, Jonathan, perpetrated let's not, by researchers, even not, CBT therapists know that's know, not how it I know, goes. I know, but let's not talk about that. I want you to talk All about right. because I think it's really important about the fundamental change. Okay, what what is it that somebody who's successful in a longer term therapy actually changes the experience? What 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 is it that changes? Well, so I don't think there's any universal answer. I think it's, you know, I think it's very individual and very specific. I also want to say, you know, I don't think that just because someone goes for a year and shows up every week doesn't mean that, you know, the kind of changes that I'd like to see mm -hmm. are taking place. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, psychotherapy isn't defined by frequency or by time it's defined to me defined by something that happens yeah yeah between, no right? granted i granted okay so, but let's so so um i would distinguish between a symptom or a diagnosis and a, a clinical case formulation right so the symptom or diagnosis is we can say the person has depression or meets criteria for depression you know, like I said before, I consider that an effect, not a cause. So now we'd start talking about causes. You know, I think for most people, by the time they get to a psychotherapist, we're not talking about short-term, you know, transient, you know, acute mm -hmm. difficulties. We're talking about something that's really woven into the fabric of, of their lives, mm -hmm. you know, who they are. So it's not about what symptoms or what disorder does the person, it's not about what they have. It's about who they are yeah. as yeah. people and how they function in the world. That's, that's really a fancy way for saying it's, it's about their, it's about their personality. So when I say personality, I mean, 
characteristic patterns of, you know, thinking, feeling, attaching, relating, coping, defending, or sort of the, you know, the patterns that make up our lives. So I would say that, you know, when someone comes to a psychotherapist for depression or for an anxiety disorder, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's the fever, but the cause of the difficulties is really woven into the fabric of their lives. So to me, meaningful therapy is about examining, understanding that fabric, these patterns, and helping the person to rework it. So let me make a, a you know clinically concrete example. Um, you know, I think there's infinite pathways to depression because it's an effect. You know, I mean, every personality style, every I, I, I believe every human being has a personality and has a personality style. Yeah, yeah. We can scientifically. We all know that by interacting <laughs> with people. You'd think, right? Yeah. yeah. And we can scientifically, and, and we have, and I have, you know, I, I, delineated, you know, common styles that, you know, that we see over and over again. Not, I'm not talking about disorders. You know, that's, that's a DSM thing. I'm talking about styles that apply to everybody. Um, every personality style carries its own vulnerabilities and, and is potentially a pathway to, to depression. So, so let me give some examples. So what I'm saying is we want to change personality. We're not trying to change the person's symptoms, although we want that too. We want to change something about the person. So let's walk through a couple of the personality styles. First of all, there's such a thing as depressive personality. We've shown it empirically. There's several subtypes of depressive personality. One pretty common subtype is, uh, is really defined by a lot of anger and aggression. The person, the patient, is often you know, both inhibited about expressing anger and aggression toward others, but is often unaware of it themselves, right? This is their psychological defenses operating. And what happens, and this is, we can, we've shown this empirically, not, not just clinical knowledge, but it fits with generations of accrued clinical knowledge. So if the person defends against the awareness of their own anger and aggression, but they tend to take it out on themselves, on themselves. They treat themselves very badly. So, you know, no jargon, no theoretical terminology, just in plain language. If you treat someone really badly, it hurts. If the person that you treat really badly is yourself, it also hurts. And that may come out looking like depression. So what's the work in therapy? I'm not concerned in, in the immediate short run about their scores on the back depression inventory. I, I would like to see that change. But what I'm concerned about is I want that person, first of all, to change fundamentally, becoming more comfortable recognizing and experiencing their anger, their hostility, their aggression. They shouldn't treat it as something foreign. That's not something they're allergic to. They don't have like an auto, a psychological autoimmune response against it. It's like these are feelings that are part of being human. Right? They're, they're with us every, every day you know, for everyone. It's not the, it's not the person's anger that's causing the problem. It's what happens after they defend against it and what becomes of, what becomes of it. So I would like them first to start to become aware of 
all of the ways and the places that they're feeling angry or hostile or destructive. I would like them to become aware of how they have gone about not attending to those aspects of their experience. I would like them to develop an understanding of how it is that they end up treating themselves in angry, destructive, and hurtful ways. And I would like them to have a relationship experience in therapy with me where it's possible to function differently, to not have to do that with the expectation that that understanding and that experience that comes from the therapy relationship will then carry over into other relationships and other areas of life. Now, if there's store, if there's great, if, if those things can happen, if their score on the Beck depression inventory decreases, I believe it's now a marker of something, you know, much more fundamental that's changed in their psychology. So, you know, in a way, I, you know, to me, the, their score in the Beck depression inventory is kind of a, you know, epiphenomenon relative to the core psychological issues that I'm, I'm trying to deal with. That's one pathway to depression among many, many, many. I mean, maybe your you know, listeners will be interested in another, you know, we, we talk about narcissistic personality and narcissistic personality disorder. It's a recipe for depression. Show me mm-hmm. somebody with a narcissist, you know, prominent narcissistic style, and I will show you somebody who either has suffered from significant depression or is vulnerable to it and very likely mm-hmm. to suffer from. It. So, you know, so why is that? One reason is um, the person has a sort of very inflated, grandiose, you know, entitled sense of what the world should afford, the world should be providing. But the fact is the world always falls short of the grandiose expectations. So no matter what rewards and successes come the person's way that somebody else might take in and feel good about and provide a foundation for realistic self-esteem for somebody with a prominent narcissistic style, whatever comes their way falls short of the expectation, therefore gets devalued, therefore is not taken in, in a way that's you know, sustaining, psychologically nourishing. And whereas somebody else might, you know, receive these, you know, successes, accomplishments, you know, with satisfaction, somebody who's narcissistic enough, they fall short of what they expect. They feel bitter and resentful yeah. in the face yeah. of their successes. Yeah. Right? I, so I really like reading your work on narcissistic <laughs> personality disorder and and the idea that any uh, inventory they fill out is going to be a false reading of who they yeah. are because that's their defense but so so the, so, so in successful what treatment would you say, what would you say in, in successful patient? treatment the person needs needs to understand that they are perpetually devaluing the things that would otherwise be fulfilling and meaningful and sustaining. And it's going to lead, you know, it's going to lead to, you know, just a sense of just, you know, emptiness and meaningless in life. And it's going to lead to acute episodes of what we call depression, you know, what comes out looking like depression, because it's the inevitable consequence of devaluing things that might otherwise feel good. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to get the thought out. Well, I'm your patient. And I come to you, I don't want to do this work to understand all of these defenses. I I just worry, uh, uh, ruminate, 
anxious about my interpersonal relationship. Are these not skills I can learn to relax, to, to uh, not be afraid of these social situations? So I'm describing kind of social anxiety. They're, they're, I know that I had a difficult childhood. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to understand it to that well, well, difficult well, work. I want to feel less anxious. So if I'm going to pretend that you're my patient, <laughs> the first thing I would probably want to talk about is, you know, you had an awful, painful childhood. Of course, I understand. You know, the last thing you want is to have to rub your nose and all these painful things all over again. Who, who in, you know, who on God's green earth would want that? Of course you don't. You know, I get, so I want, I want the patient to know, I want you to know, I understand why this seems, you know, pretty objectionable. And, um, you know, I would say, you know, if you think that the purpose, you know, for, first of all, I'm not concerned about the past for its own sake. I'm concerned about how we live our lives you know, here and now in the present. The only reason as a clinician, I'm interested in the past literally the only reason is to the extent that it can shed light on what's going on in the present in a way that can help us change that. I mean, so it, it's not this, you know, it's not this, this dive into the, you know, the, the, you know, abyss of the distant past for its own sake. The focus is always on how is it affecting you in the present? How are you feeling in the present? Are you able to be the person you want and live the life you want in the present? So, so, so that's the first thing. You know, the second thing is, I mean, if you think that the purpose of, you know, if you talk about what's going on in the present and you talk openly and freely and, you know, try to say what comes up without editing or censoring it, you know, your thoughts go everywhere. You'll find yourself talking about something, you know, immediate and recent. You'll think to find yourself talking about something that happened last week. You'll find yourself talking about something that happened in the distant past. Sometimes we'll talk about what's going on right here and now between you. You know, our, our thoughts aren't, they're not, they're not cordoned off and, you know, segregated and like, well, these are the thoughts pertaining to the present. These are the thoughts pertaining to the, to childhood. It, it doesn't work like that. It's all, it's all interconnected. If, if you think that the purpose of allowing ourselves, you know, space to see what comes up and talk about things in the past as they come up. If you think the purpose of it is just you have to relive it and feel worse about it, of course you wouldn't want to do that. On the other hand, if you think that there's another purpose to it, that out of that understanding, it might allow you to live more fully and freely and, you know, happily in the present, then it might be worth it to you. Why don't push it on the patient? I mean, it has to be a free choice. You know, I would say, and I often do say, you know, this kind of therapy isn't for everyone. On the other hand, there's also a very high likelihood that the person has had previous treatments aimed at managing, managing symptoms. And, you know, I might point out if it fits that, um, you know, look, you've made several attempts, hopefully with good competent therapists, you know, to do things to, to manage these symptoms rather than address what's fueling them. And, you know, I think 
if you had really gotten what you wanted from those treatments, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, interesting, because I've heard CBT therapists use exactly the same argument. My patient, <laughs> two years in, in uh, psychodynamic therapy, and they're just so thankful we're working on particular skills. So it's interesting that I, I hear it from Well, I, I from think there's a place both. for, but I think there's a place for both. And that's really the issue. I, I think there's really a decision node, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think of therapy as specific skills aimed at, you know, managing something, right? And I mean, that's a perfectly valid path. Do you think of therapy as understanding and working through, you know, changing something about yourself that continues to make you vulnerable to these problems. Here's, you know, so let me just, just say flat out, there's a place for both of those approaches. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need one, sometimes you need the other, sometimes you need a mix, but here's what bothers me. Okay, mm -hmm. let's, before you say this, I, I want to recognize, I think that's important in a very general sense that there are places for different types of therapy for different people at different stages in their life. And it depends, as you said, on what the patient wants and what the patient finds leads to a better life. So I well, think that's me, really important. But let me add to that what the patient wants and what the patient understands when the patient you know, has the relevant information and has the understanding to make that choice so that it's an informed choice. Mm. And what I see, and yeah. right, this is the segue to what I wanted to say, yeah. I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. There seem to be an awful lot of stakeholders in the mental health field now working to make sure that patients don't get that choice. Right. If you said to the patient up front, you know, there's really two paths we can take. They're not mutually exclusive. You know, we can do some things to help you get feeling better in the short run. You know, we can do that. We can also understand what it is about you and how you've been living that's, you know, that's been fueling these difficulties. You know, that's another path. Um, let's talk. Let's have a meaningful discussion mm -hmm. about what makes sense for you. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not the conversation patients are getting. They are getting bombarded with messages saying, you know, eight sessions or 12 sessions of, you know, skills-oriented therapy is the gold standard, the only kind of therapy that's worth considering, the only kind of therapy you can get because it's the only thing your health insurance company will pay for. Everything else is unscientific. It's some kind of big smoke yeah. and mirror hoax so mm -hmm. that basically the patients are getting lied to before they ever have an honest conversation about what yeah. they're looking for and what might be available. I'm a little uncomfortable about saying they're being lied to, but I agree 100% that patients in our mental health system, and not just in this country, but in many places, do not have a choice, okay? That it is, this is the only treatment that's available. And this is what we are going to offer you. Let me be and, more. And you don't have a choice. Yeah. Well, let me and, be more specific about what I mean when I say they're being lied to, you know, because 
if the clinician or the service or the health insurance company said what you just said, I wouldn't have any problem with it at all. It's perfectly valid. You know, what you really just said is, you know, here's a range of treatments and here's what, you know, might, you know, really be needed to, if, if it was possible to put this behind you, but in our system, this is all we can offer you. This is, this is what we can do. That's not what patients are being told, right? They come into healthcare systems and I've seen it over and over again. And, and I, I would have a hard time believing if you told me you haven't seen it, right? They come in, right? They get what's expedient within that particular healthcare system, but they don't get told we're giving, you know, we're offering this because it's expedient and we don't want to pay more money for it. And we have limited, you know, limited resources in terms of availability of clinicians. This is what we can do. They're come, they come in and they're told this is the treatment. Sometimes they're told this is the gold standard treatment. Sometimes they're told this is the treatment that's required. I've heard patients, I've treated more patients than I can count who had seen some psychiatrist before they came in to see me. And they got some story about, you know, you need to be on SSRIs for the rest of your life. It's like insulin for a diabetic. You know, mm. you, you, I mean, I hear this, I've heard a lot of analogies like that. And the patient comes to me and, you know, I say, you know, from my vantage point, I think there are things that are leading you to the field this way that you know, no guarantees, but that I think could likely change in psychotherapy. And it's not at all a foregone conclusion that you need to be on SSRIs for the rest of your mm. life. And, mm -hmm. you know, the overwhelming majority of the time, the patient is able to come off them and do well. So when I say lie, you know, if there's choices and you present it in a way that keeps people in the dark, that there are other treatment options, mm -hmm. that's what I call, that's what I call lying. Maybe yeah. I should find a more polite word. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's an important issue about, um, not only what's available, but to how we present what's available and how we pay for what's available. I mean, it is a strange uh, mental health system we have in this country, but it's not just here. I mean, if you go to England, know. you I have uh, the National Health Service and and uh, uh, I've, I've, heard, I've been hearing quite a lot about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, but. Uh, but but the issue, I think, and it's important when we're, we're going to run out of time, Jonathan, un, unfortunately, that, um, you know, the the effort in England, which you have to say is commendable, is that we need to increase access to psychological care. Well, that, um, we want to put money into a system and they put let, let me play devil's advocate we want to increase access to psychological care, but we want to provide something other than meaningful psychological care. We're going to call it access to psychological care, but actually it's access to very, very limited care that for most yeah. people, most of the time probably isn't enough. Yeah. But, but, but well, this is where we, we differ, I think, Jonathan, that it probably is meaningful care for some people, we could debate about how many. Do because... you? I've, I've read. <laughs> I've read probably all of your work. Do you really believe that, I don't know, like a three-point change on, on a PHQ-9 depression scale, do you really believe that's an adequate marker of 
effective well, treatment? I, you're asking me a, a great well, yeah, question. I'm asking and, you. <laughs> and I'm a critic of, of RCTs as well. But I do think there is evidence that, and we can debate about what proportion it is, find them that treatments that are offered do provide meaningful changes in people's lives. Now, we can debate about what's meaningful. We can debate about what the percentage is. But where we agree, Jonathan, I think it's really important is that there be a variety of treatments in delivered in different ways that people can have access to. And that people are and, fully informed about the choices yeah. and, and what's really at stake in making these choices. Mm -hmm. but, but, but let me ask you something, Bruce, because this is the second time it's come up in our conversation where you switched from you know, a clinical and a psychological frame of reference to you know, a, a, a public health and economic frame of reference. Do you know any other area of healthcare, any other area of medicine where we start with, well, what can we provide given the resources rather than what's, what's good medical care for this particular condition? Because I think that when we get into the mental health realm, something happens. See, I, I'm not aware of cardiologists who say, well, you know, here's the treatment for this kind of heart disease, but we really can't offer that on a widespread, widespread basis and, you know, a public, you know, as a matter of public policy. So we'll just send everyone a home health care kit with, you know, so many, you know, so many aspirin to take. Yeah. Right? Well, we don't do this in other, any other area of medicine, any other area of health care. So, so why when we... Well, we do, Jonathan, actually. There's, there's many instances in the we, somatic health care where, where that, that occurs. But... But the doctors who are doing the research don't start with a public health, right? That may yeah. be the outcome. The outcome may be, we, you know, here's the, here's the ideal or optimal treatment. We're not going to be able to provide this to, you know, to the, you know, on a large scale in the population. But the people who are doing the research, you know, the, 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 the physicians and the physician researchers, they're looking for, you know, how can I treat this most effectively? They're not starting with yeah. how can I how can I limit and regulate how can I limit and regulate and and ration access to care before I even begin and that's going to be my starting point for anything I even consider as an yeah. intervention. But Jonathan, if, if and we can have a great discussion about how the behavioral health care or psychological treatment in our mental health system is very different than the physical health care. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. And, and in terms of resources, accessibility, uh, a number of stigma, a lot of different issues. But if we were in charge of this health care, I would have to see a lot more fundamental research evidence that... Uh, uh, a longer term psychodynamic or psychoanalytic provided over the lifespan greater benefit than well, maybe even maybe even episodic 
Well, there actually there actually is some evidence that that comes out of uh, in Germany and Sweden. Yeah, there are two yeah. studies, right? So you know them, right? Where first of all, they did something I think was quite extraordinary and wonderful that, that we can't do in the in the U.S., right? Because it's centralized, you know, government funded healthcare. They they have a central repository of data about healthcare utilization, health services utilization, the cost of health services utilization, hospitalizations, and, and, and so on, including disability days and sick days. So they didn't look at a Beck depression inventory score. They had got people who had longer-term psychoanalytic therapy, and there was a corresponding dramatic reduction in, number one, uh, you know, other medical expenses for, you know, supposedly physical yeah. medical problems number two in you know disability and and, and sick days right? so you know from a societal point of view not only did the treatment pay for itself but it paid you know huge dividends so when you say you know you'd like to see the data i mean it's just you know two or three studies right now but it's but, pretty suggestive and more such studies could be done but we're in a system that has an yeah. incentive to not do that kind of study yeah, I, I agree with that. We really need to understand uh, uh, the longer-term consequences of different kinds of therapy. And, you know, this idea that we have a physical health and a psychic health, uh, or we call it behavioral health in, in the U.S., as separate, we know that utilization of primary care is related to psychological problems. Those okay. people who are suffering uh, use more uh, primary care resources. Absolutely. So, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of our time. And I think the one thing we agree on absolutely is that this needs to be studied. We can't just uh, do short clinical trials of different psychological treatments with a limited outcome measure. And, yeah, but let's and, let real psychologists and real clinicians have a say about, you know, in defining the purpose of psychotherapy. So I'm not yeah. prepared to advocate Ad, abdicate that discussion and let it be, you know, and let the let those decisions be made primarily, there's exceptions, but primarily by academic researchers who don't even treat patients, many of whom have never treated a patient in their entire yeah. lives. And they're going around speaking as if mm -hmm. they're experts on the process of psychotherapy and they've never done psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. They think therapy is whatever they do with a manual in eight sessions yeah. in their laboratory. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, if we're going to really have this discussion, you know, let's not have it be a one-way street where re researchers, you know, dictate what they think clinicians should think and do and understand, mm. let's actually have a mm. genuine discussion because we never hear the voices of real clinicians in public discourse. Mm. Mm. Well, this is fascinating. I wish we had another two or three hours. To I would actually enjoy this. I would love that. And I would enjoy it. And I, I, even if I gave you a hard time in this interview, I want to well, just, I, I respect your work. Jonathan, I respect you. And I'm very happy to have this discussion yeah. with you. And your passion for doing psychotherapy and for helping people is evident in our discussion. It's evident in your work. 
and and I I, I honor that. You know, uh, uh, we disagree on some some aspects of this, but I think we agree on fundamental issues about um, the limitations for the care people need. And we didn't even get into to many other issues, but we're facing a mental health crisis, I think. And we know from epidemiological studies, and we really have to think more broadly than how can we roll out another short-term therapy as a solution to the mental health problems in this country and in many other countries. So with that, I want to thank you. And uh, I look forward to uh, uh, doing this again in other Same. venues. I hope so. so. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for listening. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths offers a complete behavioral health EHR and practice management software solution, including claims, billing, clinical notes and documents, scheduling, and teletherapy, all for one simple and affordable monthly price. CarePaths EHR is HIPAA compliant and ONC certified, and can also support electronic prescribing for an additional fee. Their latest release, CarePaths Connect, includes automated measurement-based care and the ability to create a digital front door for your practice, as well as a free mobile app designed to increase patient engagement. If you're just starting your practice or are dissatisfied with your current EHR, go to carepaths.com to start your free trial today. To find out more about Bruce Wampold and his work as CarePaths Chief Clinical Officer, visit makingtherapybetter.com.